There's a, uh, there's a video on graduation day in 1987 of 25 uh, Harvard graduates, all of whom were decked out in their caps and gowns, and each one was asked separately, why is it warmer in the summer and colder in the winter? 22 of those 25 graduates responded confidently that, well, it's warmer in the summer because the earth is closer to the sun. That was the wrong answer. <laughs> in fact, you can mark this on your calendar. For the year 2022, remember that's where we are, where we are now, the year 2022, tomorrow night at 11.52, the earth will be at its closest approach to the sun. It will be about 25 degrees then. <laughs> so, I guess you can go out and light some fireworks. I don't know. Those 22 graduates got it wrong because they were analyzing the question based on their own experiences with light and warmth. Oh, I'm closer to the fire. That's why I'm warmer. They were failing to consider the inclination of the earth's earth on its axis, how during the winter months the earth is tilted away from the sun. And if that doesn't make sense to you, don't be too concerned, you can still be a Harvard graduate. <laughs> but here's the point. They weren't thinking systematically about the relationship of the earth to the sun. And we can do that today in looking at this text in the Gospel of Matthew. If we, we, we can make the mistake of thinking through it in terms of our own experiences. We can misinterpret the text if we aren't thinking systematically. If we aren't thinking about the relationship between this text and the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, indeed to the rest of the whole Bible. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 11 through 17. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I baptize you with water for repentance. This is the baptism of water. It's point number one in your outline. And right away, we are confronted with an important question. Is John baptizing people so that they will repent? Or is he baptizing people because they have repented? I know you're going to say that 
you're going to think that I'm going to say he's baptizing people because they have repented. After all, when the Pharisees and Sadducees came to his baptism, well, let me read what we find in verses 7 and 8. We read this last week. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That seems to settle the question, almost. I think it should be clear from this passage and from the rest of Scripture that John is baptizing people who have repented. We see this in the book of Acts in chapter 2 when 3,000 people were baptized after they believed. We see it in, in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius the centurion and many others were baptized in both cases, believers were baptized after they believed. And that's just what we do, do today. We baptize people after they have trusted in Jesus Christ. But let's not let go of that word for too quickly. I baptize you for repentance. Repentance and confession of sin is not something that happens just once in the life of a believer. It's really a commitment, it's a com and since it's a commitment, it's helpful to have something tangible as a reminder. So think about marriage. I remember working with a guy years ago who, who told me about his wedding day. So he came to work that day, and at lunchtime, he took his lunch break, and he, he drove off, he picked up his girlfriend, they drove to the Justice of the Peace, they signed the papers, they were declared husband and wife, and then he came back to work. Congratulations, I guess. That's not the right way to do it on your lunch break or any other break. If you want to get married, plan your wedding. Spend some money. Yes, spend some money. <laughs> invite some witnesses, invite lots of witnesses, and say your vows before them and before God. That way, after the honeymoon is over, after the honeymoon is over, you can look back and remember those vows that you made. You don't want to be in that situation where one day you're saying to your spouse, hey, hey honey, I, I, I know we're struggling in our relationship, but uh, uh, don't you remember that lunch break we took? You don't want that. So a public wedding with public vows will serve as an enduring reminder that the husband and wife shouldn't give up, but should work to keep their relationship intact. We see this in the Bible. Think about what Paul did with Timothy. Paul reminded Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. Why? Because Timothy was tempted or would be tempted to give up. He reminds Timothy of what he did in front of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Well, that's the grace of a public baptism, a public confession of sin. God will use that to remind and strengthen us to continue a life of repentance and confession. That's a good life too. It's a good life. We are baptized 
because we have repented, but we're also baptized because it will remind us to walk in that repentance. Well, there's something in this message from John that seems incidental to what he's saying, something that doesn't fit the baptism of pattern in your outline, and it's the point under number one, the unworthy one. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. In that culture, carrying a master's sandals was considered the lowliest of tasks. Uh, even a Hebrew slave was not expected to do it. But now, John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do that. Well, Matthew could have, this is just a little biographical note, isn't it? Matthew could have left it out. But because he included it, we need to ask ourselves, how is this important to me today? How, how can I apply it? We might say to ourselves, well, I can't serve Jesus' bodily needs like John did because, after all, Jesus is no longer walking on this earth. But Jesus identifies himself with the church pretty strongly. The Apostle Paul, before he was a believer, was persecuting the church. He was rounding up Christians. He was imprisoning them. He was, he was killing some of them until a voice from heaven stopped him in his tracks. And when Paul asked, who are you? The voice didn't say, I am Jesus and you are persecuting my church. The voice said this, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. To hurt the church to speak against the church is to hurt Jesus. It's to speak against him. To love Jesus, to serve Jesus, is to love the church. It's to love him. And now you know where I'm going with this. If, if John considered himself unworthy to do even the lowliest of tasks for the body of Jesus, what about us? What about us? Should any work done for the church be considered beneath our dignity? I was thinking of some women in, in childcare here, some women who change the diapers of our infants and toddlers. And by the way, because we value your trust and we're concerned about the safety of children, only women are allowed to do this. But I'm thinking of women like Pat Wigglesworth and Tori Haney and Jessica Wood and Gwen and Brenda and Danny and Gayla and Phoebe and many others. And, and I know these servants enjoy doing this. I also know that they have their moments. <laughs> I mention these women, there's many others, and there's men and women too who carry the sandals for the body of Christ. I think the scripture is making it clear that whatever task we can do for the church, no matter, how, no matter how menial, that's really an honor. That's really an honor. That is a privilege, a high privilege bestowed by God. Matthew will tell us a little later in the gospel, this is in chapter 11, he will say that John the Baptist is the greatest, Jesus will say this, the greatest among those born of women. You can't get any better than that, can you? 
And why was he considered the greatest? Was it because he preached and baptized so many people? Was it because he stood up to the religious hypocrites of the day? I think I know why. It was because John was a servant and he was ready to do the lowliest of tasks. Do you want to see the hand of God at work? Do you want to see that? I know you do. I mean, I do. Do you want to see the hand of God at work? Be a servant. Be a servant to others. Abraham's servant. This is in Genesis chapter 24. He prayed the most outrageously impossible prayer. And he saw God answer it. He saw God answer it. Joseph, you know, the the guy with the, the multicolored coat, that one, he was a faithful slave, a faithful slave. And he later became the most powerful man in Egypt, indeed in the whole world. Elisha, Elisha the prophet, had a servant. He had a servant, and and Elisha prayed for this servant, and God opened the servant's eyes to see the army of God's angels. The servants at the wedding in Cana, this is in the Gospel of John in chapter 2, they saw Jesus turn the water into wine, and they were the only ones who saw it. So you want to see the hand of God at work? Serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. I know some of you are physically not able to do that, but you know what you can do? You can take our prayer directory and you can pray. I, it's hard for me to think of a better way to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ than to pray, than to pray for them. What a wonderful way to serve. So John was a servant, maybe the greatest of servants. But Matthew uses him as a foil, a contrast to highlight one who is greater. John baptized with water for repentance, but Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is point number two on your outline, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, some phrases carry a lot of freight, and this is one of them. What do we make of baptism with, or of, or in the Holy Spirit? Before I comment on what I think it could be, let me say what I think it's not. And and here, it will seem like we're taking a little detour, but I think it's necessary because so many people have some unbiblical ideas about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm referring to this popular teaching that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by speaking in tongues and is something that happens after a person is saved, not not at the moment of salvation, but after. In this view, there's the initial indwelling of the Holy Spirit, so they at least concede that. The Holy Spirit does come in. And then, then there's a second experience, maybe. You may not get this baptism in the Holy Spirit right away, but keep asking, keep praying. That's what the proponents of this view will say. And when you do get it, when you do get this baptism of the Holy Spirit, well, finally, you'll be empowered to live a righteous life and to do the ministry that God has called you to do. 
So tongues, what can I say? I'm not saying anything for or against the gift of tongues. Whether you think the gift is still active today or not is not an issue in this church. Certainly not one that should cause division. But I do need to say some things because it's related to this view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You might remember that several weeks ago, Chase uh, preached on Genesis chapter 11. And in that chapter, is the story of the Tower of Babel. So here we are, we have peoples from all over the earth gathering to build this tower so that they can reach God. Well, God will have none of that. You think you want to come to me on your terms? Well, think again. So God shuts it down. He causes them to speak in other languages, that is tongues, with the result that they are scattered abroad. We stopped there, at least for a little while, and then Ryan began preaching in Matthew. We'll get back to that. And when we do get back to it, we'll encounter the pivotal opening words of Abraham's life in chapter 12. God has rejected all the multitudes. They're trying to get to God. God has rejected them. No, you can't do it. And he's chosen one man, just one man, and he's given him a promise. He's given Abraham a promise. I will bless you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. That is a monumental promise in Scripture. It is huge. That is a monumental promise in Scripture. It is so big. And that promise is fulfilled when Christ is resurrected and the Holy Spirit is poured out on all the nations. You, you see this beginning to happen in Acts chapter 2 when visitors from all over the world were gathered to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they heard Peter preaching. They heard Peter preaching, and they heard people speaking in their own languages. So tongues, that, that's, that was an important sign that the promise made to Abraham was fulfilled, was being fulfilled, that finally the way to God was being opened to all peoples, Yes, tongues were associated with the initial act of pouring out, the pouring out of the Spirit. But when people say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by tongues, they're making the mistake of interpreting something as prescriptive when it should be descriptive. So let me give you an example. That was in Acts chapter 2, but if you go few chapters over to Acts chapter 5, you encounter the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They were not giving to the church what they said they were giving. So they dropped dead, literally. We look at that today, and we rightfully conclude that what happened there was descriptive. It was not meant to serve as a pattern for what leaders should promote in the church today. It's a good thing. <laughs> but here's maybe a bigger problem. This baptism of the Holy Spirit is supposed to, it's supposed to empower a believer to live a righteous life and to be effective in ministry. But I have to ask, why, why is it that somebody would want that kind of experience? Is it because we are, uh, in our culture today, 
We are too impatient to wait on the Holy Spirit to slowly change our hearts, our character, and we don't want to wait years, sometimes decades, for him to do that. I mean, how, how long did Abraham have to wait until God changed his heart? He was in this habit of whenever he encountered, encountered the bad guys, he would tell Sarah, his wife, hey, just tell them you're my sister so they won't attack me. How long did it take him to trust God to protect him? Or how long did it take Jacob to trust God to provide security for him instead of trusting in his own strength? Or how old was Moses when he began his ministry? How old was he? He was 80 years old. An inheritance gained quickly in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. That's what the proverb says. An inheritance gained quickly in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. We want to grow in Christ. I know you do. We want to be effective in ministry. We want to be effective in serving. I know that. But quick growth usually makes for bad coordination. And that can lead to a lot of stumbling. That's a popular view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's unbiblical. There's another view. This is real short. It's held by some well-respected and godly Christians who think that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that should be happening continually. We are, or should be, continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. So in that thinking, being baptized is the same as being filled. Well, I'm much more sympathetic with that interpretation, but I don't think it aligns with the testimony of Scripture. So here we are, we're back on the main road, we're off this detour. This road will take us all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis chapters one and two. It's there that we read about the man and the woman in the garden and how they were given the command to work and keep the garden. Everything in the garden was good because God was there. God was in the garden. The man and the woman were in the presence of God. It was all good. That all changed when they committed treason against the throne of God by following the word of the serpent instead of the word of God. They were forcibly put out of the garden. That's what you do with traitors. And there was no way back. Living outside of the garden was living away from the presence of God. It was living in a world where everything that came from the ground was cursed. So what comes from the ground? Everything. Our longing then, our longing has, has been to get back to the presence of God. That's what we want. We want to get back to the presence of God. We're not at home in this world. We're not meant to be at home in this world. We couldn't get back. We didn't even know how. Those powerful angels were still guarding the entrance. No one can see it, much, much less even find it. So there are what I like to call electric verses, or electric passages in Scripture. They just grab you like an electric current. Uh, they, they, they arrest your attention. 
We find one of these in Exodus chapter 25. It's in verse 8. The Lord is speaking to Moses from the top of Mount Sinai, and he says, let them, that's the Israelites, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That is such a powerful statement. For thousands of years, the people of the seed of the woman, Genesis 3, the people who call on the name of the Lord, Genesis 4, the Israelites themselves finally see a way back to God. So they built a sanctuary. They built a courtyard where all of God's people could meet to worship him. And within that sanctuary, they built a tabernacle, which was home to the very presence of God. We should remember, however, that this tabernacle and later the temple is what the author of Hebrews calls a type or a shadow. Like a shadow, it's meant to point to something else. The temple is meant to point to something else, to something that is a heavenly reality. The shadow is not meant to last. We have to understand that. Shadows are not meant to last. The heavenly reality is. That reality is explained by Jesus himself. You can read it in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Jesus says the temple is his body. God wanted all his people to dwell in the tabernacle slash temple. That was his plan. Under the old covenant, only the priest could enter the temple, and only the high priest could enter the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, the very presence of God. But now, under the new covenant, the covenant inaugurated by Jesus' blood, all God's people can enter the temple, even the most holy place. They don't exist anymore, the tabernacle and the temple, and they shouldn't. The temple is Christ himself. There's no need for a physical temple anymore. But where am I going with this, and how does this relate to the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Again, God wants his people, all of them, to dwell in his temple, to live and move and find their being within Christ himself. Jesus prayed for this in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was arrested, what we popularly call the high priestly prayer. He asked the Father that others who would later believe in him would be one with him and the Father. He prays this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It was the Father's will from the beginning of time that his children would one day be with him, would be in his presence, but not just be in his presence, but be in him be enveloped in him, be overwhelmed in him, be immersed in him, be baptized in him. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That happens when the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, comes in you when you are born again. He is in you, and you are in him. 
Baptism is a fitting way to illustrate that. But John says that he didn't just baptize with the Holy Spirit, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. That brings us to our third point, baptism of fire. And as we look at this, we need to keep in mind that that preposition with, the preposition with, governs, it controls both Holy Spirit and fire. So John is not saying that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Holy Spirit and fire go together. And maybe quite naturally, this has led some to conclude that fire refers to this refining that God will do in the believer's life. The Holy Spirit will come in. That's one aspect of the baptism. And then God will begin this purging of sin out of the believer's life. That's the second aspect. So it reminds me of Proverbs 17.3, which says this. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. That crucible and that furnace are what our loving Lord uses to refine his children, to purge them from the heavy baggage of sin that dogs our every step. And as attractive as that may be, I don't think it's the right interpretation. For one thing, Matthew doesn't use fire in this passage as a refining fire, a fire that, uh, that improves our character, each of us are individually. He doesn't use it as a refining fire, but as a fire of judgment. So just before this, we read about baptizing, uh, just before this re, uh, baptizing with the fire, uh, the Holy Spirit and fire, we read about fruitless trees being cut down and thrown into the fire. And then right after this, we read about the chaff being burned with unquenchable fire. So you might ask, well, how can someone be baptized with the Holy Spirit and the judgment of fire at the same time? The someone in this case is the people of Israel. Some are repentant and some are not. That's just what we see in the passage from Malachi that Gwen read earlier. So this is Malachi 3, verses 1 through 4. It's just a few pages over from Matthew 3. It speaks of the messenger. Behold, I send my messenger. That's John the Baptist. And it speaks of the Lord who will suddenly come to his temple. That's Jesus, of course. But let me read this again. Malachi 3, verses 2 and 3. It says this. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can endure the day of the Lord's coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. The fuller was one who would dye garments. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord." People will not be able to endure the day of his coming. They won't be able to stand before him when he appears to judge. That's what we see when we look at the context of this passage in Malachi. So if we turn back one chapter to Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, we read this. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, 
then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. The Lord will refine the Levites, but he will do it by removing those who will not repent. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I think we know what barn refers to. It's heaven. It's symbolic for the place and the presence of God. Jesus will gather his crop, his fruit, his flock into his eternal dwelling place. And I think fire is also symbolic as well. I don't think it refers to a literal hellfire. But there is a place of torment, a place of judgment, and it's every bit as bad as a lake of fire. So think about this. In heaven, you get to be with the person you love the most. And you get to enjoy what that person has created. In heaven, you get to be with Jesus. And you get to be with all the good that he has created. Which is beyond our ability to number or even comprehend. Hell is the same way. In hell, you get to be with the person you love the most. And you get to be with all the good that that person has created. You get to be with yourself. And you get to be with all of the good that you have created. And that means you get to be with nothing. With nothing except yourself. That's a real horror if you think about it. There's one last baptism that John mentions, and that's the baptism of Jesus. This is point number four in your outline. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Well, it should be obvious to us that Jesus didn't need to be baptized for repentance. Jesus never sinned. He had no need to repent. What might be less obvious is that John, the greatest of those born of women, was lacking in his understanding of the righteousness of God. John protested the thought that Jesus needed to be baptized, but Jesus responded to John saying, John, this is the right thing to do. Well, then John consented. We can almost hear John saying, Okay, Lord, I, I don't understand this, but I'll do whatever you ask. And so we need to give credit for, to John for doing that. But are we like John? Or do we, by our actions, in effect say to God, I won't do that until I understand what's going on. The book of Hebrews says of Abraham, we're going to read this in 
Genesis chapter 12. We're going we're gonna to get back to that. God told him to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and, and to go. Just go. And the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says of him that he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham acted in faith, and so did John. In this life, we'll be asked to do many things, and some of them we will not understand. But we need to walk in faith. But why was it the right thing to do? Why was it that Jesus had to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness? Matthew gives us some hints in his gospel. In chapter 1 of Matthew, in, in the verse 1, we read about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in that genealogy, there's the descent from Abraham and, and from the, the royal line of the kings. But there are also four women who are mentioned, including Mary. And each of these women are suspect in their character. But the fact that they are mentioned is important. Jesus is identifying with even the lowliest of people. Matthew then says in this same chapter that Mary will bear a son and will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's verse 21. So his people, what does that mean? We might take that one of two ways. It, it could mean that, well, these, these are just my people, like the Pharaoh of Egypt owns his people, and I can do with them whatever I want. But I think it's better to understand it the way the, way, uh, the apostle John does when he says, that Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's in the Gospel of John, chapter, uh, chapter 1, and verse 11. Jesus belonged to his people. They were his people. He identified with them. Matthew also tells us something about the identity of Jesus when his mother and father took him to Egypt. That's in chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And he rose, that's Joseph, and took his child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. We've heard Ryan preach on this already, but just to remind us, this saying, out of Egypt I called my son, was spoken by Hosea the prophet who lived some 700 years before Christ. In that passage, Hosea is clearly speaking of the people of Israel. He says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's Hosea 11, verse 1. God called the people of Israel out of Egypt through a savior, Moses, and he baptized them, Moses baptized them in the sea. That's the Red Sea. That's the wording that Paul uses, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, right at the beginning of that chapter. They were baptized through the sea. And now Matthew is saying that Jesus is Israel. That's part of his identity. Jesus is Israel, the new Israel, and so he, like Israel, must be baptized. He must be baptized he must wander in the wilderness. Jesus must wander in the wilderness for 40 days, just as Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And Jesus must die, just like Israel died when they lost their temple and their land. 
Jesus was baptized because he identified with the people of God. It was the right thing to do. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. The heavens were opened. This is apocalyptic language. Something big is about to happen. Something big is about to happen. Isaiah was pleading for this. This is Isaiah 64 and verse 1. I'll read it, but I, I want to start in chapter 63 and verse 15 to pick up the context. Isaiah has been lamenting that Israel, God's people, have forsaken him. They have wandered so far from God that if Abraham and Israel, their forefathers, could come back, they wouldn't recognize them. And so he waits for God to do something something so spectacular that the heavens would have to be torn open. Now, as I read this, I want you to note Isaiah's desperation. There's a desperation there. And, and think about, as you think about Jesus' baptism, think about how God the Father and the Holy Spirit join the Son in coming down and answering that desperation. Isaiah 63, verse 15. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me, for you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. The heavens were finally opened, and now God is able is about to make his name known to his people and to all the nations. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The book of Genesis begins with God the Father creating the heavens and the earth, the Spirit hovering over the face of the water, and the Son speaking into the creation, let there be light. And we see much the same thing here. In fact, if you're reading through the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Matthew, this may be the first instance after Genesis 1 where you see something of a clear reference to the Trinity. And Matthew, I think, wants us to see this. He begins his gospel, Matthew 1 and verse 1, the book of the Genesis that's the Greek, that's the Greek word there, of Jesus Christ. 
And that, of course, reminds us of the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And in that book, in chapter 1 and verse 2, the Spirit was moving. It was hovering. It was brooding like a bird, waiting for the Word of God, waiting to create new life. And now in this passage, in Matthew 3, the Holy Spirit comes down, descends from the skies like a dove, and rests on Jesus. And we hear the approving voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And that reminds us yet again of Genesis 1, of what is said after the first man and woman were created. And God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. The book of Genesis begins with the creation of new life, and so does the book of Matthew. Something new is about to happen. There will be a new creation, and this ministry of the new creation starts with the baptism of Jesus. But let's not miss this. The vision of the Spirit coming down and the voice from heaven, they happen after Jesus' baptism. They happen after Jesus publicly identifies with his people. We obediently submit to baptism because we're commanded to do it. We should do it. If you are a believer in Christ, then something, something's happened in your heart. You heard the word of God at one time. The Holy Spirit took that word and he created in you a new heart. And suddenly, you believed in God. Your sins were nailed to the cross. You died the death that Jesus died. That's what the Bible says. And you were raised with Christ into new life. So we, who are followers of Christ, each of us as individuals, should submit to baptism. Whether we understand it fully or not, but there's another aspect of baptism that we need to consider. And it's this. Baptism is a public declaration that you belong to and identify with the people of God. Just as Jesus did. You are saying to the world and to yourself that these are my people. I belong to them and they belong to me. I'm committed to them, and I will love them and serve them no matter what. That's what Jesus did. So how can we do less? There was a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Well, we sometimes talk about uh, gospel nuggets. These are these uh, golden little sayings in scripture. They're kind of summary statements uh, of the gospel. John 3.16 is one of them. For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Or there's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But this short statement, I think, is also a nugget. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. To believe in Christ, to know that he died for your sins, that he was raised from the dead for your sake, to understand that this is all of grace and not of your works. Yes, that's the gospel. That's the good news. And if, and if, you, and if you truly believe those things, then of course you will be pleased with him. But to say to someone, hey, do you, do you, do you want to be pleased with what God is pleased with? Do you, want, do you want to be pleased with what God is pleased with? Well, guess what? God is really pleased with Jesus. Well, let me try to wrap all these things together by asking, are you, are you pleased with what God is pleased? I don't care that you checked the box so many years ago. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. Uh, Jesus, Jesus, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I believe in him. What I want to know is, do you take pleasure in him? Does Jesus Christ satisfy you like nothing else? Can you say to someone, have you said to someone, I love Jesus. I really love him. If you are pleased with Christ, have you been baptized? Have you made that public confession? Have you identified with God's people? Have you said in your heart, these people, this group, this body, I belong to them. I love them. If you have, let me encourage you to serve them. Would you do that? Let me encourage you to serve what God loves more than anything else. And if you haven't done that, would you come talk to me? Would you please come talk to me? In fact, I'll be down here after, in a minute here. You can talk to me about anything. I, I think I've probably raised a lot of questions today, so feel free to come talk to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are pleased with Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are pleased with your people because you live in them. We have been baptized with in your Holy Spirit. And we long for that day when we'll be with you in eternity. We'll be in your presence in eternity. We'll be in that new Jerusalem, that house of Zion, when we see you face to face. We will feast with you, enjoying all the good that you have created. As we sing now, Lord, would you cause us to remember? Lord, do, do cause us to remember that you have done great things. You have done great things. Cause us to remember, remember that the day is coming when we will weep no more. Amen.